Why don't you guys go ahead and take a seat? Happy New Year. I know it's the 9th of January, but it's the first time we're back together in person. And I want you to know that over the last several weeks, I have been praying for you. Um, you know, this marks four years since my family moved here. We moved here on January 2nd of 2018 with nothing but a dream and a prayer uh, and a couple people and some great friends like the Willises who jumped into this with us and um, several of you that I look around the room and I think, I think how amazing you guys are. And then on January, or on August 12th of 2018, we, we launched this church, um, City Church, that has been, it's been amazing to look back on and reflect on the fact that uh, if, any, if anybody would have told you to start a church in 2018, you'd have, you, in looking back now, you kind of laugh at them, right? We've gone through the craziest stuff you could ever think about. But I think the thing that God has revealed to me over the last couple weeks is the resilience of our church. Like, I can't imagine doing this with anybody else other than you guys. It's, it, I, it gives me confidence to go about this for the next 30 years. To think about the fact that you have dug in with me and us, and, and you've trusted God throughout this entire time. Honestly, uh, I walk into 2022, I thought it'd be different, and then everybody has COVID, uh, and, and it just, I don't, it doesn't bother me because I know that I get to go to battle with you, and I'm grateful for that. So I'm glad that we get to kick the year off this way, and my prayer for us this year has been that we get to really experience God, no matter the circumstances, no matter if it's another crazy year, or if we get through all this and we're back to um, getting to do church the way that we used to, we, or differently, in a better way, uh, but we get more of Jesus this year. All right, that's my prayer, and we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to talk about some rhythms of growth uh, for our lives. But let me, let me ask you this. How many of you guys had, um, you got to do something fun over Christmas? Anybody? Anybody? And you survived, right? You're back. You're healthy. You're here. Good. Uh, what about New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Who, who are New Year's resolutions type people? Wow. All right, not, not a ton of you. How many of you that do New Year's resolutions on January 9th, 2022 have already given up? How many of you don't do them because you're tired of giving up nine days into it? All right, there, there's the honesty. You know, a couple years ago, I decided for the first time to do a New Year's resolution, one that I hadn't done in a while. I decided that I was going to put to death Fat Billy. Uh, if you don't know, Fat Billy's my alter ego. It's my wife's ex-husband. You know, he no longer exists because we've crucified him. Um, but I, I decided I was going to get a YMCA membership to do that. Little did I know, the greatest thing that the YMCA has ever done is they make you cancel your membership in person. All right, not that I did this or anything, but could you imagine driving there after you just ate a double cheeseburger and the amount of shame that you have to go through to cancel your gym membership? That's why I kept it for like two and a half years and why there's nine people in there, yet there's 76,000 of you that have a YMCA membership, right? That's why I don't do these anymore. But I, I am happy to tell you that eventually we did kill Fat Billy and it wasn't because of the why. There was other reasons for that. Here's the deal. Uh, all of us want a fresh start. The reason why New Year's resolutions are so popular is because we go into a new year with a fresh start in mind every year. We, we want to look back and be proud of something. But also the reason why most of us never actually accomplished these things is because, well, we're pretty unrealistic about our rhythms. We, we, we tend to want the whole pie, if you will. We, we want to do the whole thing, and we don't set out these realistic expectations of what life should look like. Today, I want to kick off a new series that's going to help you, I hope, in the next several weeks to set forth some practical, tangible rhythms that can actually set your life 
in a trajectory this year that will bring you joy and happiness, that you can actually get through. So the key to the Christian life is growth and rhythms and what I would say are these three areas. But before we get into that, let me define the term real quick, Christian, because I, I think that this, this is going to be helpful for you. Did you know that the word Christian really doesn't show up in the Bible? Matter of fact, it only shows up three times in the New Testament, and it's more of a pejorative, and it's not a positive statement. It's not like, oh, those are Christians. It's like, no, those are Christians. The, the more proper term that I want us to use, the one that Jesus tended to use, is the word disciple or discipleship. To be, uh, to be uh, exact, it's used 269 times in the New Testament to describe people who follow Jesus. Now, Christians use three times. Disciple is used 269 times. The difference is, is Christian is a title, and disciple is something you do. It's an action. It's who you become. This year, I want to help you set forth some rhythms that will actually help you to be a follower of Jesus. That's what I want to get after. Because, if you will, we're all following something. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that there's everything in this world is vying to grab your attention and to pull you towards it. So this year, I want us to decide to take control of what we can control with our relationship with Jesus and start by following him. That's what these three things are going to help you to do. So today we're going to start by looking at worship, because worship is the main rhythm of the Christian life. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me over in Romans chapter 12. All right, Romans chapter 12. I'll give you a second to get there. Verse 1, when you're there. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, it's right here on the screen. Here's what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, the other day I was um, sitting on the beach in Florida, rough life, I, I know, sometimes I get to do that. And I was reading this statement in a book uh, about this, this idea called the G.I. Joe fallacy. Anybody ever um, grow up watching G.I. Joes, uh, old enough to do that? At the end of every episode, there was this, this um, statement that they did called, uh, and it says this, knowing is half the battle. You ever heard that? Knowing is half the battle. You, you realize that's maybe the worst statement ever said. Knowing is not half the battle. Imagine if your kids just walked up to you and says, yeah, daddy, I knew what to do. I just didn't do it. You, you wouldn't be like, hey, at least you knew the right thing to do. No, there's nothing worse than knowing and not doing. And for many of us, that's our experience in the Christian life, isn't it? We know who Jesus is, and yet we don't apply or follow him in our lives. What I want you to show you today in Romans 12 is knowing has to lead to doing, or else it's not worship. Knowing has to lead to doing. At some point, we have to decide that if what we know about Jesus is true, then we've got to do something about it. So here's the big idea today. Here's the big idea. Worship is taking what you believe about God and living like it. I mean, as simple as that. Worship is taking what you believe about God and living like it. You know, when we started this church a while back, um, we wanted to have the main onus of our church to help people grow in the Christian life. So we thought about what would it look like for us to help people grow in the Christian life, and, and that's where we created our mission statement as a church. I'll give you the long version, but I want to take some time and, and spell out the short version for you. Here's the long version. We exist as a church to facilitate a movement that helps to multiply disciples who worship God, serve our city, and love our world. 
what we've said is, is that the growth in the Christian life is the intersection of these three things. I'm left-handed, so let me get over here. It's the intersection of worship God, serve our city, and love our world. Basically, what we've said is, if you, if you were to draw these concentric circles, where you grow in the Christian life is where those things intersect. Um, where you worship God, serve our city, and love our world. Tried drawing. That's so bad, I got to erase that. <laughs> That's not even English. I don't know. It's more like Greek. Now, if you notice this, these are all actions. They're things you do, right? You worship, you serve, and you love. What we've said is, if we can help design a church that would help you intersect your life with the things you're already doing, do it with gospel intentionality, and do it with these three things, then you'll grow in the Christian life. So honest, if you're not in a small group, this is what our small groups do. They do worship God every week. They, they do a Bible study based on the sermon, which is theology, if you will. It's knowing God. And serve our city. They, they live in the sense of community, which I'm going to talk about next week. And then we serve and we love our world. What I want to show you today is the first one of these, the primary one, which is the worship God. So let's drill down on this for a second. I love that way that Rick Warren defines worship. It's so simple, and yet it's so good. Rick Warren says that worship is simply offering your love to God. It's simply offering your love to God. I love that definition because, well, love is the deepest part about you, isn't it? Love doesn't look like it's reciprocal. Think, think about it like this. Here's what I mean by that. If your love requires people to reciprocate that love back, then you would never love your kids, right? Just the other day, as a matter of fact, we got home from our vacation yesterday and at 5.45 in the morning, for some reason, my kids feel like they've got to go wake up the rooster that wakes up the rest of the world. Um, they're downstairs fighting over the TV, throwing a temper tantrum. And, and I promise you, if we had to have reciprocating love, they would have got thrown against the wall and not got loved. Uh, this is just real life. Um, but we love them. We love them because love is sacrificial. Love is not something you can quantify. If I asked you to define love right now, you couldn't do it. There's no magical scientific formula, and yet you know you experience it whenever you experience it. See, that means that worship is more than just singing songs on a Sunday morning. Worship is living in this loving relationship. It's giving yourself to God in love. So let me jump into the text, and let me show you this. I, I love this. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. No, just to set the tone, Paul was a super intellectual, uh, highly educated uh, theologian. Uh, a lot of the writers in the New Testament weren't, but Paul was. He went to the best schools. If it was 2022, it had been like he went to Georgia Southern, Harvard of the South or something like that. Uh, he would have been highly educated and done very well. Um, but because he was educated, he wrote in a systematic type of way so you can always know where Paul is going. The reason that's important is because the book of Romans is broken up into two major sections. If you grab the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is all theology. If you're the super intellectual type and you want to read all the nuances of theology, the first 11 chapters is for you. The last five chapters of the book of Romans is all practical. It's basically how do I take 
what this theology says and apply it to my life. And that, therefore, is the hinge to the entire book of Romans. Matter of fact, chapters, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are two summary statements of how you apply the entire book of Romans to your life. So here it is. It's super simple. The first way you do that is, he says, if Jesus is who he said that he is, then the only reasonable thing you can do with your life is give your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. And you don't need to conform to the patterns of this world. Basically, Paul is going to show you that if you do those two things, that's where authentic worship comes from. That's why he starts off this final section by saying this. I appeal to you, if you go back to that last verse. I appeal to you. Now, that word appeal, it's actually, it's much stronger than that. Some translations say, I besiege you. Others say, I urge you. Paul is basically saying, if you understand what I just spent the last 11 chapters telling you, then I urge you, like I'm begging you, take what I told you. And he says, I appeal to you by or because of or based on the mercies of God to do something. Now, you know what mercy is? Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So Paul is saying, I appeal to you. I'm begging you. Take what I'm telling you seriously based on God's mercy. If you understand God's mercy, here, here's what he's showing you. The first 11 chapters, it tells you that you and I, if you were honest, deserve God's wrath. That's what the first three chapters are all about. If you're a Jew, that's chapter one, then you're, you're, not, you're, you're not outside of God's wrath. If you're a Gentile, chapter two, you're not outside of God's wrath. The concluding point in chapter three is no one is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on from chapter three, four, five, six, seven, and eight to talk about the amazing grace of God. And his concluding point in chapter eight is, is um, um, I don't know, now I'm gonna draw a blank. This is why I have this thing in front of me. He says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, you are no longer condemned because of Jesus. All of that, he says, is because Jesus lived your life in your place. And then he died your death in your place. He rose from the dead to give you life. And Paul's saying, if you get this, I appeal to you by his mercy to do this, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, let's break this down because there's so much in here. First, notice this word, body. See, in the Greek uh, world back then, the philosophers of the day tried to separate the body and the mind. They wanted you to either be a stoic or be all in with your mind, uh, or with your body, I'm sorry. And, and Jesus says, you can't do that. They actually go together. I mean, who you are is one complete person, a body and a soul that makes one person. So Paul is saying, I appeal to you based on the gospel to give your entire life to God. Then he says the craziest thing. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever seen a sacrifice. They're, they're not cute like you tend to see like in the, the movies and stuff. I was, in, I was in Kolkata, India once, and I walked into this Hindu temple, which actually had an adjoining wall to Mother Teresa's home of the destitute and dying, which you don't talk about irony. One of those are saving lives. The other one's worshiping idols and sacrificing animals. And you walked in and let me just say, it's the most gruesome, awful thing you could ever see in your entire life. And the thing about all sacrifices are, they're dead, right? You put them on the altar because they're dead. Do you know what a living sacrifice does? It gets off the altar because nobody's ready to get sacrifice. So when Paul says a living sacrifice, he's telling you something incredibly important about worship. Watch this. Worship is hard. Worship's hard. 
Worship is a sacrifice of ourselves, which means it's not easy. It's not easy. Okay, this is why I love the Bible. The Bible is pretty clear that the world's not all butterflies and rainbows. The world is hard, and every day is hard, right? I, I know I, I got a little ahead of myself, but write this down and don't ever forget it. Worship is hard. Like, how many of you thought that 2022 was going to be so much easier? I know I did. I thought I'm going to get home from the beach, we're going to get going, and things are going to be great. And then the text messages started coming in, and we had to cancel City Kids in the last service because people were sick, and, and on and on and on. And I'm just sitting there thinking, 2021 looked pretty good. It's hard. Life is hard. Don't forget that. But here's the good news. And, and this is actually proven. Modern-day psychologists prove this, that you can literally rewire your, neuro, rewire your neural pathways. Here's what I mean by that. The things that you think about, the things that you do, and the things you do more often actually become more natural and becomes easier. And I'm going to show you this in a little bit, but that's the beauty of worship. It is hard. But the more you do it and the more you decide to do it, the easier it will become. By the way, this is why rhythms work. This is why New Year's resolutions don't work and rhythms do work. Because the more you do them, the easier they become and they actually become who you are. All right, this is why Paul says that we need to just keep going. So worship. Here's what worship's not. Worship's not just music. Worship's not showing up to church. Worship's not reading your Bible. It's not doing some good stuff. Worship isn't living a moral life and being committed to your family. Worship is choosing to give your entire self to God, even whenever it's hard, and doing it over and over and over again, because naturally, you're going to want to get up off the altar. I, I can prove this to you. This is why every single one of you Georgia fans in the room can tell me every stat about the University of Georgia. You can tell me who they're playing, what time they're playing. Matter of fact, I texted a guy yesterday and was like, the Georgia game tomorrow. He's like, oh, correction, it's Monday at 8.08. Like, thanks. You, you can tell me, and it's easy and it's natural. But it's like drudgery to get up and get in your Bible. You know, the reason is, is because we naturally walk away from our worship of God, and we naturally walk to other things. It's a sacrifice that we have to do over and over again. But when we do it, it becomes easier. That's why, by the way, if you look, if you put that verse back up there, he says it's your spiritual worship. That word spiritual, it's, it's probably a mistranslation. It should be reasonable. That word is logikos, which we get the word logical from. Here's what Paul's saying. Based on what Jesus has done for you, giving your life back to him is quite reasonable. Think about it. You ever seen the movie Les Mis? I know we're, we're dating ourselves a little bit here, but you remember the guy, Jean, who steals a bunch of stuff and the priest comes up to him and he forgives him and he gives back the debt to him? What does it do to him? It changes him because the only reasonable thing he can do in the midst of such great mercy is to be transformed. That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, if you get the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, if you get what God has done for you, then the only reasonable thing that you can do for your, with your life is to give it back to God. You know, even the word worship, it, it, it's a kind of a fascinating word. In Hebrew, it's the word kabod, which means weight. It's a weightiness. It means that you give such value to something that you, you give it the weight that it deserves. In English, the word worship actually comes from the word, I know we don't have much room here, but it comes from the word Worth-ship. Worth-ship. The, the idea there is worship is actually worth-ship. It's what you give value to. It's what you give worth to. The thing that you value the most in your life tends to be the thing that you worship. 
So Paul is saying that it's only reasonable to worship God if you get the gospel. So here's my question for you. I have two of them. It's real simple. Do you get the gospel? Do you get the gospel? Do you get the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans? Do you get that God set forth a perfect standard for righteousness, and we have literally missed the mark? That's what the word sin means, by the way. It doesn't mean that you just do a bunch of bad stuff. Sin's the Greek word hamartia. It's an archery term. That means that there was a bullseye, and every time that the archer would miss the mark, the perfect mark, it would say sin or hamartia. You missed the perfect mark of God. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus never missed it. Jesus lived our perfect life so that he could, he could hit the mark perfectly so you and I wouldn't have to. He put on flesh. He walked our life so that we could receive his love and not his wrath. That's the point. I know it's cliche, but um, imagine that you and I are walking down Highway 9 and a big old semi-truck comes barreling down the road and I pushed you out of the way and I got nipped by it and I ended up in the ICU. You know what you would do? You wouldn't be like, hey, man, thanks. That was great. I appreciate it. No, you'd feel indebted to me, wouldn't you? You'd feel indebted to me because you would feel like I saved your life. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Paul is saying, do you realize that there was a massive semi-truck of God's wrath coming right for you? And Jesus pushed all of us out of the way, and he nailed himself to the cross so that we could receive his love and not his wrath. Sometimes I wonder if we get that. Because if we do, the only response to God's mercy, the only reasonable thing that you and I could ever do is worship him. By the way, that's what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. You realize every religion in the world says you have to give to God in order to receive from him. The gospel says that Jesus did everything necessary to save you, therefore all you have to do is love him. He did it before you and I ever took our first breath. He loved you before you ever deserved it. And that's the irony of how worship works, too. When you sacrifice, Blaise Pascal, famous philosopher, he says this. He says all of us have this God-sized hole in our heart, this vacuum. Here's what he's saying is when you become a living sacrifice, the idea is, is that God fills that hole with himself. So you never actually sacrifice anything. You actually become more free and you get more of him. So that leads to the natural next question is this, is what are the things that you value most? I've often thought about this. What would it look like if we sat down as a family and we're just honest about that? Hey, if I list a priority of the things that I value the most in my life, what are they? Because here's what you'll find is the things that you value the most are the things that you worship. They're the things you give your life to. Check this out. There's a passage that Jesus talks about. I, wanna, I, wanna, I think Jesus does a great job of explaining what worship is. It's in John 4, 24. Listen to what he says. He says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If I can be honest with you, I didn't understand this passage for a long time, and then I read something somewhere, and it clicked for me. Here, here's, if you want to authentically worship Jesus, here's, what, here's how you do it. He tells you right here. First, you have to worship God in truth. Here's what I mean by that. How many of you know somebody in your life that just has this blind faith? We call it cultural Christianity. I go to church because that's what I'm supposed to do or um, because my parents did it, and you know, we do that because that's just what we do. And I'm not talking about complete faith. I know some people at this church that have complete faith. Here's what that means. They totally trust God for anything, all the time, anywhere. That's awesome. What I'm talking about is blind faith. It's one of the most destructive aspects of Southern cultural Christianity. And it falls apart, and the new cliche word today is deconstruction. We start to deconstruct our faith in the midst of adversity. You see, to worship God in truth is to worship God for who he is. 
who the Bible says he is, not who we want him to be. I, I, like, it's to know him deeply and to invest in a relationship with him. Listen, if your God never disagrees with you about any matter at all, you might not be worshiping the God of the Bible. You might be worshiping an image of yourself. The reality is, is there's some hard stuff in the Bible, but the more deeply we think about God, the more seriously we think about him, we can walk into some of the craziest stuff and we can investigate it and we can begin to worship God in truth. Now watch this, because Jesus tells you that's not enough. See, Jesus says it's actually not enough to experience God just to know truth. He says you have to worship him in spirit too. Now, for me, I never understood this, and I think it may be because I grew up in like a stale Baptist background where the Holy Spirit was like a boogeyman that you didn't talk about. But the reality is, is God wants you to go deeper with him. He wants you to worship him in spirit. See, again, back in the day, the philosophers, they used to tell you that the spirit and the mind were two different things, and Jesus brings them back together, and he says, the mind is what causes the spirit to go deeper into you. To worship God in spirit is to know him deep in your bones. It's to feel him. It's to take what you know in your head and to push it down into your heart. That's where love comes from. So again, if you ever ask anybody to, uh, to define love, they can't. You just know that you experience it. To worship God in spirit is to love him. It's to push what you know in your head down to your heart. It's to trust him. Now, worship has to include both your head and your heart. Because here's the deal, is if you worship God with your mind and not your heart, you'll never experience the power of God. And if you worship God with your heart and not your mind, at some point, it's going to come into conflict with things that are going on in this broken world, and your faith might fall apart. We need both. So write this down. Worship begins when you take what you know in your mind and you experience God in a relationship. That's the point. The truth is the rationality part of you. The spirit is the relationship part of you. We need both. We need what we know about God in our head to translate into what we experience God in our world. Let me give you some examples of what this looks like in the real world. It's one thing to know that Jesus is Lord. It's an entirely different thing to trust him with the decisions of your life. Like, for many of you, it's easy to say, oh, I believe that Jesus is God. I'm a Christian. But then I don't trust him with my sexuality. I don't trust him with living with my girlfriend before I get married or the things that you do after you get married. See, it's one thing to know him with your mind. It's another thing to actually trust that what he says about you is good and right, even when you don't agree with it. It's one thing that Jesus knows best for your life. It's an entirely different thing to start being generous with your, your time and your money and, joining, and committing to a community of people because what Jesus says about covenant community, you actually believe. It's, it's, you hear what I'm saying? It's one thing to say these things. It's another thing to commit to these things. It's one thing to intellectually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. It's an entirely different thing to believe that there's resurrection power in this world right now, in the middle of the uncertainty, to believe that God can fix your marriage, that he can walk through the pain and the suffering that you're going through. And trust me, I've been a pastor here long enough to know the stuff that you're going through, the, the illnesses and the, the family members and the loss of jobs and all those things. It's one thing to know it, and it's another thing to experience him. In order to experience God, you have to take what you know about God and you have to believe it and start actively walking in it. That's where worship begins. You haven't started worshiping until you worship God with spirit and truth. Go back to Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. Top 10 most mistranslated verses in the entire Bible. 
all right? This, this Bible is what's, or this verse is what's caused a lot of you just to abandon the world. To, it's what caused people to like tell women they had to start wearing pants to church and you can't dance because you never know where dancing is going to go. Can I, can I tell you something? God doesn't hate this world. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3, 16. I bet you we can recite it together. For God so loved the, say it louder, world. God loves the world. The reality is a lot of us just abandon the world. We don't actually serve our city and love our world because we think that we shouldn't be conformed to the world. The word world in Greek is the word cosmos. It's, it's the word that you, never, you often think about when you think about the earth. That's actually not the word that Paul uses here. The word that he uses here is the word ion or eon. It's, it means systems of the world of this age. And listen, this, this, he's, what he's saying is don't be conformed to the current systems of this world. There's a massive difference here, and when you get this, it changes everything. It means that there's culture and marketing and things that are always vying for your attention in your life, that if you will be conformed to them, if you'll become like them, it will actually pull against you. So there's systems of the world that Paul says that you shouldn't be worshiping. Don't be conformed to culture. How many of you know people like that? Every time there's a new cultural fad, they're in on it. The Facebook posts, the Twitter message, the Instagram, TikTok, or whatever you guys do. There's another one every week. Say it another way. We're always going to worship something. So we can either be transformed by God, which I'm going to show you in a second, or you'll negatively be conformed to the systems of this world. So let me tell you a few systems of the world. The biggest one's popularity, right? Social media. Every time we get a like, we love it. Or how about wealth and health and tolerance? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things until those things become what you worship. Like popularity, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be liked until that becomes your entire identity. Or wealth. Jesus didn't say money's bad. He said the root of all evil is the love of money. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be successful and to make a lot of money. The problem is, is when you love your money more than your family, right? Or health. Nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy. Matter of fact, you should be healthy. Your body's a temple given by God. The problem is, is when it becomes the main thing of your life, it's the way that you look, or tolerance. You realize, by the way, there's no, nobody in this world is tolerant. We all just want people to agree with us. That's why D.A. Carson wrote an article called The Intolerance of Tolerance. We tend to be the most intolerant to the people that we don't agree with. The problem is, with all of these things, is when they become the things that we want most. So here, here, here write this down. Conforming to the patterns of this world means that you adopt the systems of the world over the word of God. Or the way C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine said it is we have a disordered loves. It's when God's not priority, then we start to worship these things. See, when God's priority, go do all these things. That's fine. Because God is number one. What Paul is saying is, is when you adopt the systems over the world, over the word of God, that actually becomes the things that you worship. See, the world's not bad. The world has never been bad. The current age is the thing that you can't conform to. And there's a battle being waged over all of our souls, and it's a worldview battle. Paul is saying, if you really want to worship, then you don't give yourself to that. Because you will either sacrifice your life on the altar of culture, or you'll sacrifice your life on the altar of God. One leads to slavery, and the other one leads to freedom. So Paul says, instead of being conformed to the systems or the patterns of this age, we should be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 
Here's what I love. That word transformed is where we get the word metamorphosis from. And the best example of this is a butterfly, right? When a butterfly uh, goes into a cocoon or the, the caterpillar and it comes out a couple months later, it's not like, hey, look, I'm going to be a caterpillar and grow some wings. No, it becomes a completely different being. It literally changes who it is. Here's what the Bible is saying. I love this. By who you become, you will be transformed into somebody new by the renewal of your mind. Now watch this, because this is so important. You ready? You are what you think about most. It's really that simple. You are what you think about most. Again, almost every leading psychologist of the day will tell you that your mind will ultimately transform who you are. So if you fill your mind with lustful things, you are eventually going to become a lustful person. If you fill your mind with just success and you're just driven by success, at the end of the day, you will sacrifice anything to become successful. Why is that important? Go back to that last verse. Watch what Paul is saying. I want you to get the thought process. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind after Paul just spent 11 chapters talking about who Jesus is. Here's what Paul is trying to tell you. If you get the gospel, if you get the gospel, and if you get who Jesus really is, and you just go back to the gospel over and over and over again, God will then transform you into a different type of person. Tim Keller, a famous pastor in New York City, here's how he says it. He says the gospel is not just the diving board into the Christian life. It's not just your entry point. It's the pool that you go deeper into every single day. So let me ask you a question. What do you fill your mind with? You know, the Barna Research Group, here's what they said. The average millennial spent 2,800 hours last year consuming digital media and on average only 153 hours on the gospel. Now, before you pick on millennials, let me tell you a few things about them. They're the largest generation in the world. They're almost 40 by this point, and you gave them the trophies. So there's that. Here's the point. We're all renewing our minds into something. The thing you spend the most time thinking about is the thing that you will be transformed into. You know what's sad to me, y'all? Many of us in this room can tell you more about Yellowstone than you can about the gospel. We're more discipled by Netflix than we are Jesus. And we wonder why our spiritual worship is so stale. Because we spend the majority of our hours of our life worshiping at the altar of social media and not at the altar of Jesus. So if you want to worship Jesus this year, I'm just telling you the easiest thing you can do is spend time with him. Because you will rewire your neural pathways, if you will, and you'll become something different. That's why there's billions of dollars spent on marketing to you every single year. People get this. We realize that the thing that captures you is who you will become. And as you become that, that's what you will worship. And eventually, that's who you will become. So the healthiest rhythm in the entire world is this. You will become what you fill your mind with. That's Paul's point. It's really that simple. If you want to worship, fill your mind with Jesus, and you will become that type of person. So let me give you three really practical ways that you can set your life up in this rhythm this year. They're, they're super simple. Letter A is this. Make it a point to come to church. Like I'm, and by the way, I know you're watching online. If you're sick, stay home. <laughs> right? We want to keep gathering here. That's why we live stream. But a lot of us don't prioritize coming to church. 
And honestly, for me, I didn't really know how big of a deal it was until we had to shut down our church for six months, and then the first Sunday we came back to worship. The experience of being in the room with you. It's like I needed to know it was going to be okay. I needed to experience Jesus with you. And you taught me something about God. And I taught you something about God. There's something that being online, you will never experience if you're not in this room. For many of us, we need to commit to going all in with the church this year, to prioritize it, because it's in this gospel-saturated community that we experience God together. Here's letter B. It's super simple. Jump into a small group. I promise you, if you show me your five closest friends, I'll show you a mirror back into who you are. What if this was the year that you and I decided that the closest community that we had, the closest concentric circle of our life was the group that we love Jesus together with, that we spent time together with, that we, as Dustin said, walked through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life together with? Because I'm just telling you, in the non-Christian world, people aren't equipped to walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly with you if you have a Christian worldview. We need something deeper. We need one another. Here's the last one, letter C, read your Bible. If what Paul is saying is true, then read your Bible. And look, it doesn't get any easier than 2022. You can put an app on at times three speed and listen to the whole Bible in like 30 minutes. Right? It's, and there's, there's Bible reading plans galore out there. But what I want to challenge you to do is consume your life with more Jesus than Netflix this year. Because again, what you listen to, what you fill your mind with is who you become. If you want to be transformed into a gospel-loving believer this year, that's the simplest way to do it. Come to church, jump in a small group, and read your Bible. Write this down, because this is what Paul's concluding statement is. The presentation of our bodies leads to the transformation of our life. When we give ourselves to God and what we think about and who we are, what we become is somebody different. That's Paul's point. The things you think about are what are going to determine if you put yourself on as a living sacrifice. And as you do that, you will become who God called you to be. So as practical as I can say it, the reason that most of us aren't experiencing the transformative power of God in our lives is because we're more full of the world than we are of Jesus. If you want to experience deep worship this year, you need to fill yourself with more Jesus. And the way that you do that is you decide with your mind that you are going to love him with your heart. That's how worship works. That's how it works. You don't have to look away from the world. The world's not bad. You just have to look to God. Can I just tell you, like, the first time I heard this, it's changed everything about me. Even with sin. If you are battling a sin right now, you don't have to feel guilty about the things you're doing. You just have to look to Jesus. And the more you do it, I promise you, this is, it's been proven psychologically, the more you do it and train your mind to look this way, the less you're going to want to do this. If you're always suppressing things over here, you're just going to feel guilty. and You're going to find that you're falling back into it over and over and over again. You need to run to Jesus in love. And as you do that, that's what changes your heart. So let me end with this real practically. Worship will lead to the will of God for your life too. Here's what I mean. People ask me all the time, all the time. I get this question all the time. What's, the, what's God's will for my life? What should I do? That's a great question, by the way. Listen, the will of God is fluid, and I want to show it to you. If you go to the next verse here, our next slide here, and this is what Paul says. Here's the concluding statement, that by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Here's what Paul is saying. If you change your mind about something, God will transform you by how you worship 
into the type of person that knows the will of God, and it becomes accessible. You see, here, here, here's, the, here's the key to it all, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the, the key to it all. God's will is who you are, not what you do. That God's will is fluid. And the reason why that's so important is because the world's not black and white. Do you know how badly I wish that there was a verse here that I was like, should I send my kids to this college or that college? Oh, there it is, Georgia Southern. Like, it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The world's gray. Let me tell you why that's so important. I got to confess to you. The last two and a half years of my life have been the hardest two and a half years of my life. In my leadership, it's been hard, y'all. Like, I don't know if I got it right. I know people don't say this often, but I look back and I think, choosing between the health of our people and the worshiping in community, I, I don't know if I got it right. Matter of fact, oftentimes I wonder if we got it wrong. I just got to confess that to you. I don't, I don't know. I, if you were to ask me today, do you, do you feel like looking back you got it right? I don't know. I really don't know. You know what I never question? Did God smile down on us? You know why? Because it was less about the decisions we made and right, more about the people we were. I, I look back and I, didn't, I just want to tell you this. I really could care less what culture said. Matter of fact, it would have been a whole lot easier not to do the things we did, right? Shutting down the church, requiring masks, all that, it, it, it led me to getting some pretty deep hell with some people. I, I just did what we thought was right. I worshiped God. I presented my life to him as a living sacrifice. And as we discerned the will of God, I leaned into the community of people around me that love Jesus, our elders and, and wise people. We just did the best we could. And that's what the will of God is. I want you to know, like, if you are the type of person that God is calling you to be, then you never have to regret a decision that you ever make in your entire life. Because God cares way more about who you are than what you do. That's so freeing. And that's what Paul is saying. If you want to experience the grace of God in your life, if you want to experience him, like truly experience him, it's less about what you do and it's more about who you are. Because if who you are is that type of person, then what you do really doesn't matter. I'm going to end by telling you this, and you can take this to the bank. Here's, how you, here's all you need to do in your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your will, and then do anything else you want to do in life. Martin Luther said that. You know what? It doesn't really matter what you do. Because if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, then you're going to become the type of person that's going to do the will of God. What if this was the year that we experienced God's grace? What if this was the year that you and I just decided that we were going to stop prioritizing all this other stuff and start worshiping God? Start giving our lives to Him. Let me read it over you one more time. You ready? Verse 12, or verse 1. I appeal to you. I, I beseech you. I urge you, friends, based on God's mercy in your life. You might want to see this guy. Let me move this. He's important. We like him. Based on God's mercy in your life, based on the gospel, I urge you to present your whole being 
as a living sacrifice, continually putting yourself back on that altar, continually trusting that God is good, no matter what, continually walking forward because you realize that in the end, in the end, God will be faithful. And that's holy. That's acceptable to God. That's all God wants from you. It's just to walk with him, which is reasonable, isn't it? That's reasonable. That is your reasonable worship. Don't be conformed to the age and the patterns of this world, to culture or whatever people tell you. Don't be sucked into whatever the common fad is because I promise you the fads of the day will change and if your, if, if your relationship with this culture is subjective, then it's only gonna be as good as culture says it's good and it's gonna change one day. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. And the way that you do that is by what you think about. So think about God. And then, then no matter what you do, you'll be able to test it. You can discern. It all becomes easier. And that's the will of God. And it's good. And it's acceptable to God. And it's perfect. I love that. God's not after perfection. He's after your heart. He's after your worship. And that's what I want us to start this year off doing, is worship.